Welcome to the Social Policy Connections audio podcast. The following podcast contains a response to Cardinal George Pell's October lecture in Westminster Cathedral Hall entitled One Christian Perspective on Climate Change. Our speaker, Jeff Lacey, addresses the question of developing an ethical response to climate change with its ramifications in both science and politics, and he reflects on Cardinal Pell's position on these issues. A civil engineer, Jeff Lacey is also well known as a pioneering environmentalist and naturalist. His most recent work, Sufficient for the Day, Towards a Sustainable Culture, was published by the Yarra Institute for Religion and Social Policy. Jeff is an honorary senior fellow at the University of Melbourne. A full transcript of his talk is available on our website www.socialpolicyconnections.org.au And now, let's hear from Jeff Lacey. The talk that Cardinal Pearl gave in Westminster Cathedral Hall was entitled One Christian Perspective on Climate Change. A shorter version of the talk appeared in the Australian at that time. He said that a reason he was speaking out was to avoid having too many Christian leaders repeating the mistakes of the past and to provide some balance to ecclesiastical offerings. In my talk, I will address the question as to how we develop an ethical response to the issue of climate change. In particular, I will look at one, the science, two, the politics, three, the foundations of an ethical position, and four, what constitutes an adequate response. I will look at where Cardinal Pell stands on each of these matters. First of all, the science. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which I'll refer to from now on as IPCC, it involves over 800 climate scientists around the world and it's issued a number of major reports. These reports demonstrate that global warming is in fact occurring and that there is a very high probability that it is at least partly caused by human-generated uh, human emissions of greenhouse gases. Cardinal Pell says that what is important is whether the evidence and explanations are adequate to demonstrate climate change. On this point, I can only agree with him. However, along with a small group of scientists, he is sceptical about global warming. He observes, it is not generally realised that in 2001, one of the IPC assessments, the report's working group agreed in climate research and modelling we are dealing with a coupled non-linear chaotic system and therefore that the long-term prediction of future climate states is not possible. Well, he seemed to understand that as some sort of admission of defeat. But in the same paragraph, the IPCC go on to explain that what they expect to achieve is the prediction of the pro probability distribution of the system's future possible states by the generation of model solutions. So the climate scientists recognise that it is not possible to predict future climate exactly. 
And so in their models, they assess the probabilities of different outcomes. For example, they provide scenarios of global temperature rises corresponding to different carbon emission policies. Cardinal Pell and the sceptical scientists he quotes greatly exaggerate the area of uncertainty. In fact, the greenhouse effect in which carbon dioxide and other gases uh, tend to cause the, the earth to warm is not in doubt at all, but established science. And it is very hard to deny that global warming is occurring when we consider the melting of glaciers, the melting of permafrost and the Greenland ice shelf and the reduction of summer ice in the Arctic Ocean. What is in doubt is the degree of future warming as estimated by the mathematical models. Um, just a note here on use of the word sceptic. I do not intend this word to have pejorative connotations and I avoid using the word denier, which Cardinal Pell finds offensive. The term sceptic is in common use in discussion about climate change and I use it simply as a shorthand for a complex of views. Now, I think that what is important about the, IC, the IPCC is that theirs is the most comprehensive study of global warming. Their reports contain the best and most detailed information we have about the phenomenon and the best estimates we have at this stage as to the future trends. The publications of the various sceptical scientists hardly make a dint in the soundness of this work. None of them has produced a convincing critique or anything like it of that achievement. Cardinal Pell elaborates on some points raised by the sceptics while adding his own flavour. For example, he says that the influence of major volcanoes has been omitted from the climate models. He also says that uncertainties include sunspot activities and cloud formation, as well as deforestation, soil carbon and aerosols. We should also add variations of the Earth's orbital parameters, uh, asteroid and comet impacts, and variations in cosmic rays. Well, he's mistaken here. Volcanoes and clouds are considered in the models, and asteroids and comets are pretty much irrelevant to the issue. Um, in considering the science, it's important to realise that global warming is not the only major environmental problem we face. The biosphere is under assault in other ways as well. These include a massive destruction of ecosystems that support abundant life, including rainforests and wetlands, and the impacts of resource extraction, such as the terrible oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. All these issues are interrelated and action on all of them is connected to action on global warming. Okay, secondly, let's consider the politics. It would be a mistake to imagine that global warming scepticism is merely a matter of minority opinion existing in a political vacuum. On the contrary, the rhetoric is very much connected with political agendas and strategies. Clive Hamilton, in his book, Scorcher, spells out some of the connections between the sceptics and the mining and energy industries and others. A well-known example is the Lavoisier Group that was developed by Hugh Morgan, former CEO of Western Mining, and his associate Ray Evans. They made their position unmistakably clear 
when they wrote in the year 2000, with the Kyoto Protocol, we face the most serious challenge to our sovereignty since the Japanese fleet entered the Coral Sea on the 3rd of May, 1942. The conferences of this group feature the various climate sceptics in Australia, thus helping to strengthen the formal and informal political network. In his paper, Cardinal Pell quotes with approval a number of the Australian scientists and activists who oppose action on global warming. At the same time, he opposes the position of scientists and others who are working to reduce carbon emissions. He also makes an unsubstantial attack on Al Gore's film An Inconvenient Truth. He is therefore not just a person with an opinion, but a person engaged in a political campaign. In his own words, a campaign against spending money on meeting the Kyoto Protocol. So he has taken sides on one of the most important issues of our time. Sometimes the sceptics draw a thin line between their science and their political rhetoric. Sometimes they use rather strange arguments in their efforts to convince. Cardinal Pell, for example, observes that today's total carbon dioxide concentration represents less than 1 25th of 1%. He also notes that the atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide is generally the same everywhere, but temperature changes are not the same everywhere. He even gives a footnote as a source to this piece of trivia. In fact, these observations are quite irrelevant to the issue and irrelevant to just about anything else. He claims animals would not notice a doubling of carbon dioxide, and obviously plants would love it. In the other direction, humans would feel no adverse effects unless CO2 concentration rose to at least uh, 5,000 parts per million, or almost 13 times today's concentration, far beyond any likely future atmospheric levels. Can you believe it? 13 times today's concentration of carbon dioxide a truly breathtaking suggestion. In a brief theological comment on global warming, the Cardinal refers to the biblical story of the Tower of Babel. He says that the metaphor of the Tower could be seen as a, pre as a presumptuous attempt to control or appropriate the divine and that we should ask whether our attempts at global climate control are within human capacity. Have scientists been co-opted into a bigger, better advertised and more expensive bandwagon than the Millennium Bug fiasco. While his language is not completely clear, it appears that he considers it is not the big polluters who are tending to control climate, but rather the scientists of the IPCC. Next, let's consider the development of an ethical position. Um, how can we develop an ethical position on the issue of global warming. Well, I'll start this off with a further consideration of the science. As I've already indicated, evidence is overwhelming that global warming is occurring, but there are necessary uncertainties about future developments. With their mathematical models, the IPCC scientists have tried to ascribe probabilities to global temperature rises for different scenarios of greenhouse gas emission policies. They find that without drastic cuts to these emissions, the temperature rise will be unacceptable. 
it will cause serious ecological and social disruptions, including sea level rise. But how are we to deal with the uncertainties in the models? Cardinal Pell's position is clear. He says he sees the moral dimension of the issue in the following terms. He says the cost of attempts to make global warming go away will be heavy. They may be levelled initially on the big polluters, but they will eventually trickle down to the end users. He concludes, don't act when in doubt. He says there is no precautionary principle, only the criteria for assessing what actions are prudent. Well, let us consider now what he's talking about here, the precautionary principle. It's, this principle states that if an actual policy has a suspected risk of causing harm to the public or the environment, but there is an absence of scientific consensus on the matter, then the burden of proof that it is not harmful should fall on those who are taking the action. Now, this principle conforms to common sense. It is also supported by many in the scientific community. It is incorporated in some legal systems, such as the European Union, and it is recognised in the social doctrine of the Catholic Church. In the present instance, the actions we are concerned with are the processes that produce carbon emissions. The climate scientists have produced strong evidence that projected levels of emissions will lead to grave consequences, causing irreversible harm to the biosphere and human beings. While we do not have conclusive proof of these future consequences, their estimates amount to the best knowledge we now have. The theoretical bases have not been successfully challenged. So, the precautionary principle indicates that we need to take the relevant precautions to reduce greenhouse emissions and to take other environmental measures to alleviate stress on the world's ecosystems. Such measures include stopping the destruction of forests. But what if the scientists somehow turn out to be wrong? And it's not as bad as that. Will we have gone to all this trouble for nothing and will we have done harm? Well, Cardinal Pell thinks so. He asks, are there any long-term benefits from the schemes to combat global warming apart from extra tax revenues for governments and income for those devising and implementing the schemes? Will the burdens be shared generally or fall mainly on the shoulders of the battlers, the poor? Well, I believe that he is mistaken. The implications of taking action are very different from this. First of all, processes of long-term monitoring will enable decisions and policies to be reviewed and, if necessary, modified. Furthermore, as I will illustrate, the steps to limit global warming are also steps that are of ecological and social value in other ways too. While it is important to start out from the precautionary principle, I believe that we can go beyond it. To do so, it is important to recognise how we have got to the present environmental crisis, epitomised by global warming. What are the values that guide the development of our economic and technological systems? Many forces, many social forces interact when decisions about innovation are being made. Corporations are motivated by the goals of profit and growth. 
governments tend to enhance their own power. The genuine popular appeal of ever-changing technologies is also important. These various social factors, profit, state power and consumerism, tend to be mutually reinforcing in supporting technological innovation and growth in consumption. Underlying this technical and economic system is a mechanistic view of the natural world. In this view, the world is seen as the natural world is seen as needing to be developed, brought into the economy if it is, have, if it is to have value and meaning. The land is seen as no more than a set of resources, as something existing for human benefit alone. Well, this current view of nature and of our style of technology are prime factors that have led to our increasing demand on the world's resources and to the present environmental crisis of which global warming is the most striking manifestation. I ask now, is any resolution of the crisis possible within the present mechanistic worldview? Well, the government is about to set a price on carbon this may well facilitate a, a partial beneficial shift away from the more intensive, the more carbon intensive industrial and transport processes in favour of efficiency and renewable energy. However, such proposals on their own are inadequate. The emphasis on carbon price tends to be a one-dimensional approach, not proportionate to the actual task of healing the damage done to the biosphere. Corporations and many citizens, still thinking within the mechanical view, will continue to resist these proposals because they still view the natural world as just a set of resources and they are committed to open-ended growth. Furthermore, while setting up the carbon tax, the government has retreated into a renewed obsession with uranium mining and export, enhancing the kind of development that will in turn give rise to further carbon emissions. It is necessary then to leave behind this mechanistic worldview and go in a different direction. So now let's consider what is the alternative. In contrast to this mechanistic view, we have another tradition with a long history. I call it the organic view, in which nature is not just a set of resources for human use, but has its own intrinsic value. What do I mean by nature? I understand nature as the world in all its diversity, the elements, the soil, the plants and animals, including ourselves. It is at once familiar, yet evoking wonder. The natural world has a quality of wildness. It is not something we own. Historian Lewis Mumford relates this organic model to what he calls an economy of plenitude, where we have renounced high energy use, but where we continue to develop a rich and abundant culture, including a renewed familiarity with nature. The values that underlie the organic model combine our understanding of nature and the relationships with other human beings. These values include local empowerment, full recognition of human rights, as well as environmental sustainability. The organic view represents a continuity with the past and remains the view of perhaps the majority of people in the world today, 
especially the poor of the world and many farmers. Their traditional lifestyles are grounded in the particular locality where they live and they vary from one place to another. As philosopher Ivan Illich observes, their activities are not motivated by thoughts of exchange. They are autonomous, non-market-related actions that by their own true nature escape bureaucratic control, satisfying needs to which in the very process they give specific shape. Unfortunately, in the processes of economic development, such subsistence-oriented cultures have been undermined. In fact, many millions of people are in process of being displaced from their traditional lands to become a labour force in cities and in marginal extractive developments. The organic view is also reflected in the social doctrine of the Catholic Church and similar considerations apply to the other churches. Over the, post, over the past four decades, this doctrine has increasingly stressed a concern for the environment while noting the connection with the long-term concern for social justice. In his message for the World Day of Peace last year, Pope Benedict chose the theme if you want to cultivate peace, protect creation. He argued that humanity needs a profound cultural renewal. It needs to rediscover those values which can serve as the solid basis for building a brighter future for all. Our present crisis requires, our present crises require us to rethink the path we are travelling together. He has no doubts about climate change. He goes on to say... Can we remain indifferent to the problems associated with such realities as climate change, desertification, the deterioration and loss of productivity in vast agricultural areas, the pollution of rivers and aquifers, the loss of biodiversity, the increase of natural catastrophes, the deforestation of equatorial and tropical regions? So here he's recapitulating and adding his own touch to what's been the, you know, the social tradition in the church developed by many people. He goes on to say, can we disregard the growing phenomenon of environmental refugees, people who are forced by the degradation of their natural habitat to forsake it and often take their possessions as well in order to face the dangers and uncertainties of forced displacement? Can we remain impassive in the face of actual and potential conflicts involving access to natural resources? All these are issues with a profound impact on the exercise of human rights, such as the right to life, food, health and development. He uses the word prudence in a way that's suggestive of the precautionary principle. He says it should be evident that the ecological crisis cannot be viewed in isolation from other related questions. Prudence would thus dictate a profound long-term review of our model of development one which would take into consideration the meaning of the economy and its goals, with an eye to correcting its malfunctions and misapplications. Okay, so the sense of reverence for creation expressed here and in Christian literature throughout the centuries seems to find no echo in the paper by Cardinal Pell. On the contrary, in trying to satirise environmentalists he says, 
The rewards for proper environmental behavior are uncertain, unlike the grim scenarios for the future as a result of human irresponsibility, which have a dash of the apocalypse about them, even of the horsemen of the apocalypse. The immense financial costs true believers would impose on economies can be compared with the sacrifices offered traditionally in religion. This rather cryptic comment can be understood better in the light of the Cardinal's remarks on some previous occasions. For example, he once said that some of the more historical and extreme claims about global warming appear symptomatic of a pagan emptiness, of a Western fear when confronted by the immense and basically uncontrollable forces of nature. Perhaps they're looking for a cause that is almost a substitute for religion. And on that occasion, he went on to say, in the past, pagans sacrificed animals and even humans in vain attempts to placate capricious and cruel gods. Today, they demand a reduction in carbon dioxide emissions. <laughs> well, I guess it would be hard to find room in this view for an organic perspective or an appreciation of the wildness of nature or a sense of God being intimately present in nature. I must say that I find one aspect of all this extremely puzzling, given the Pope's statements, such as ones I quoted. It seems rather undiplomatic of the Cardinal to say that a reason he's speaking out is to avoid having too many Christian leaders repeating the mistakes of the past and to provide some balance to ecclesiastical offerings. Um, well, let us now go on to explore the organic vision. First consider what factors will make a culture and economy sustainable. In particular, what will mitigate global warming and other environmental stresses? Some economists and politicians argue that it is a matter of balancing the interests of the economy and the environment. However, in reality, these two factors, economy and environment, are not separate but are intimately connected so that we cannot achieve sustainability by this kind of balance. On the contrary, if our technologies are to be sustainable, they must operate within the environmental context in harmony with the cycles of the ecosystems. So they can't be something that's set up in opposition to balance the economy must operate within the environment. In his well-known book, Small is Beautiful, economist E.F. Schumacher considered the question of appropriate scale in technology. He said, we always need both freedom and order. We need the freedom of lots and lots of small autonomous units and at the same time, the orderliness of large-scale, possibly global unity and coordination. When it comes to action, we obviously need small units. For every activity, there is a certain appropriate scale. Our present economy has been heavily globalised. It celebrates maximum flows of goods around the world and maximal personal travel for those who can afford it. So if we are to reduce carbon emissions, this cannot continue. The organic alternative, with its emphasis on the local scale, as suggested by Schumacher, goes hand in hand with a reduction in energy consumption. 
So I believe that globalization needs to be corrected by the recognition that many things can be done better on a smaller scale and using simpler technologies. The global can be balanced by a sense of the local, a sense of the place we live in and all that is special to it. This recognition is essential if we are to preserve diversity in the biosphere and in culture. Well, let's sort of explore this, how it might work out. As we respond to global warming, we'll experience important shifts in the economy. In particular, a shift away from present forms of production that involve high carbon emissions. This will include a significant, a significant decline in travel and in the transportation and control of goods. So it's important to shift this balance away from globalism towards the local. It's time to recognise the neglected organising principle of what I'll call local self-reliance, in which communities aim to produce what they need or want under their own management, using as far as possible local resources. I do not claim to have a blueprint for solutions to our environmental problems. Rather, in my book, I look at some images that I hope will point in the right direction. Some of my examples uh, are from Maryborough in the early 1980s, when I was involved with people experimenting with things like mud brick building and with organic approaches to food growing, such as permaculture. Uh, I see these things as signs pointing towards a sustainable future. You know, that process of uh, working, you know, making mud brick, working with it, building, communi building a community house, building some homes, uh, all that, you know, it gives us this sense of the local. We're using its soil, we're building, we're getting ourselves out of this over-globalised economy, building up something local. Local self-reliance opens up the possibility of, op of managing our own economy to a much greater degree than at present. Local self-reliance is the practice of active lifestyles, growing food, cooking, developing low-energy technologies, making music. Here, people enjoy the familiar interaction with neighbours, mutual help, contact with the natural environment. Um, when I talk about um, low-energy technologies, perhaps the best and simplest example is simply designing houses and other buildings for what's called passive solar heating. In other words, you simply you have the, orient, you have the windows oriented um, for the best reception of the sun, you have good insulation, you have what's called thermal mass, like you have some heavy materials like brick, mud or something like that that stores up the heat, um, keeps, keeps it moderate in the daytime and keeps it warmer at night. These very simple uh, renewable technologies, low cost, um, of first class examples. Ivan Illich put it in the Latin American context in this, these self-reliant communities that the, there that the guitar is valued over the record, the library over the schoolroom, the backyard garden over the supermarket selection. The self-reliant economy would be one of equity in which all people have access to the resources they need for their survival and well-being. They would participate effectively 
in making the decisions for the workplace and community. Material and energy, and energy needs are greatly reduced. When Cardinal Powell expresses worry that the burdens of reducing carbon emissions fall mainly on the poor, I argue, on the contrary, that the values of equity and participation go hand in hand with the pursuit of ecological sustainability. Processes that harm the environment cause particular harm to the poor, who often have no escape or relief. On the other hand, engaging in sustainable activity tends to empower local communities as well. It's important to consider how throughout the coming economic changes people can meet their needs and maintain their household economies. With this self-reliant perspective, it's not just a question of providing jobs, but more a matter of opening up whole new approaches as to how we sustain ourselves. Um, provision of food is of first importance. I envisage that much more will be grown in the neighbourhood and in the city and much less transported over long distances. There are many advantages in this. When we gain enhanced food quality, uh, there is very considerable reduction in fuel for transportation. And through this degree of local self-reliance, we gain some economic independence. The construction of buildings for passive solar heating, so that most of the heat comes from the sun, uh, is another important self-reliant activity. Uh, furthermore, there is much potential for cooperatives and other local enterprises in the retrofitting of existing buildings, for example, with insulation and to make them more energy efficient and to, renew, uh, to implement renewable energy technologies such as wind power. Uh, cooperatives have been much neglected but with the credit union movement, we do have a good financial basis for expanding them and you know, in principle, the opportunity is there right now. So these examples demonstrate the several dimensions of self-reliance. The technologies used are appropriate to the local scale and community context. There is a significant reduction in energy and other imports required by the neighbourhood or city. Activities of designing, building, manufacturing, growing food are carried out in the local community, thus strengthening their economy. Consequently, there's a reduction in dependence on the wider capitalist economy. Um, now, a sustainable culture requires an organic harmony between the city and the countryside, between the natural and the built environment. Lewis Mumford, Lewis Mumford proposed the siting of clusters of city, cities in a permanent green matrix in order to form new ecological and political units. He argued that this is essential to the culture of cities. So in that spirit, I envisage a gentle overlapping between city and farm and bushland. I hope that this will be accompanied by a growing sense of community between city and country people with shared economic benefits, including the provision of food and a shared task of restoring the damaged ecology. 
We can work towards an organic harmony between city and countryside, between the natural and built environment. Gardens and ponds would flourish in the city, producing much food as well as an abundance of trees and flowers. The bushland itself would reach into the city with no boundaries separating the natural from the built environment, but rather a single rich ecosystem. Before concluding, I should ask, why do I attach importance to Cardinal Pell's views on climate change? After all, his views are far from unusual and he shares many of them with other prominent climate sceptics. Yet there is good reason to listen carefully to what he says. In his paper, he does a number of things. He expresses a scientific opinion and less directly a view of nature. He takes a political stand with a certain body of people and he puts forward the elements of a theological position. The media often refer to him as Australia's leading Catholic. Many assume that his position is the mainstream Christian position. Although this is not the case, I still think we can be grateful to the Cardinal for putting forward his position so publicly. He has taken one line of thought to its limits. I have argued that this is a deeply flawed position scientifically and its view of our human relationship with the natural world. Furthermore, it is a position at odds with the tradition of, of Christian social teaching. It is important to understand his position in order to express our alternative view more clearly and to carry our view forward more vigorously to the public. I believe that the environmental crisis epitomised by the global warming calls for a response in the depths of our being. The organic view that I have explored embodies a vision of the good life. Achieving sustainability demands a transformation, in fact a conversion in the very depths of our being. Let us consider a couple of insights into what this entails. It is, it is important, first of all, to be really at home in our local place. Thomas Merton, reflecting on the grounds, reflecting in the grounds of his monastery in Kentucky, once wrote, more and more I appreciate the beauty and solemnity of the way up through the woods, past the barn, up the stony rise, into the grove of tall straight oaks and hickories, around through the pines, swinging to the hilltop and the clearing that looks out over the valley. He says it is it is essential to experience at all times the moods of one good place. No one will ever be able to say how essential, how truly part of a genuine life this is. <clears throat> Australian theologian Dennis Edwards sees ecology as having its place at the heart of our faith. He says commitment to the poor and commitment to the well-being of life on this planet must go together as two interrelated dimensions of the one Christian vocation. Edwards goes on to say, ecological conversion, like conversion to the side of the poor, will need to involve both the political and the mystical, the ordinary um, the, and the discovery of the mystical precisely in the political. Yes, all these aspects of the task are connected, the science, the political, 
the ethical and the mystical. It is important to understand the science well and to engage in the urgent political task of building up networks in which we work together on global warming, perhaps the central issue of our times. And underlying all this is the work of our own conversion, individual and communal, what Edwards calls the mystical, on which all else depends.